you know, we get asked all the time, who are your listeners? Who subscribes to your podcast? You know, how many do you have? So I thought you may be curious. We, at our peak month, which was uh, June of 2018, just last month as I'm recording this, we got 242,000 listens. So the podcast has been growing, doing really well. We're close to uh, approximately 600 podcasts that have been done. Not all by me, thank God, but many of them have been. I wanted to know something. Um, who are you, listeners? We, uh, from the data that we've seen, there's a lot of early adopters, uh, people that are you know anywhere from like 30 to uh, 55 that are interested in tech and all the new stuff that's coming out. But that may not be accurate. So I wanted to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, can you send an email to support at Future Tech Podcast? And let us know a little bit about yourself. You don't have to tell us your name or any of that stuff, but if you just let us know, why do you listen to the podcast? What do you get out of it? What some of your favorite episodes have been? And what do you want to see more of and hear more of in the podcast? And I'd love to accommodate you. And I'd love your feedback. So again, please send an email to support at futuretechpodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Jeff Klunzinger. He's the co-founder of OS Fund. The website is osf.co, and they invest in uh, companies that have to do with genomics, synthetic biology, AI, precision automation, and new materials. So, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, uh, it may be surprising that uh, you know I want to talk to a, a company that invests in in future tech companies, but uh, the reason why is that you'll probably have a lot of perspective on great new projects out there and what's happening in these various fields. So that's the whole reason I wanted to talk to you. So tell me about the fund. Why did you decide to uh, create it? And what's the goal of the fund more specifically? Sure. Um, Well, one quick uh, correction. Our our website's uh, www.osfund.co. Oh, okay. We'll fix it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Um, Well, so OS Fund, it's a venture capital firm that invests in entrepreneurs and companies that develop breakthrough discoveries in science and technology with the goal of addressing our most pressing problems. So Brian Johnson and I um, launched the fund in 2013 with a $100 million commitment from Brian um, out of the proceeds of his sale of uh, Braintree Venmo to PayPal. Um, so we, we launched it with the belief that in order to solve the real-world problems, uh, we need to rethink our operating system, which is the the OS standpoint. We still get a lot of questions on that, and okay. invest in technological developments that propel us forward as a society. So imagine using bacteria to recycle, capture carbon, and to clean air, or create self-fertilizing crops in hunger-stricken areas. Um, so over the past four years that we've been investing, we've invested in 28 companies, including four that have become uh, unicorns. 26 have received additional uh, funding, and we've had two exits during that period of time. Um, so we, we really try and change the landscape of the medical, agri- agricultural, and energy industries. Um, that's an amazing that's, record so far. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we're pretty excited about what we've done, but really the entrepreneurs and the companies we've partnered with. So it's, it's a great ecosystem we've been building. 
So tell me, uh, tell me about some of the um, the ones that you're most fascinated in, whether they're you know you've exited or not, whether they've come to fruition or not. Which ones are your favorites so far, and why? Well, I, I uh, you know I, I can't exactly pick favorites, but maybe I'll highlight a few. Um, there's there's a few that are actually um, that really have compelling stories, and, and um, Brian and I have been trying to profile some of these companies uh, via our, our Medium uh, uh, page recently. But what, one is um, uh, Numat Technologies. They are effectively commercializing a class of nanomaterials called MOFs. It's metal organic frameworks. Um, imagine engineering atomic scale um, these MOFs and doing things like filter water from air and xenon from the ocean, things that are almost, I mean, they're, they're absolutely incredible. Uh, they, they actually have commercialized through a, um, a deal, worldwide deal with Versum Materials that they signed at the end of last summer um, to go into the semiconductor gas space where they um, essentially, so if you take their material that they use their AI machine learning software to to design and then uh, they produce internally. If you take their material in just an eight ounce cup, you could, I'm just trying to think of a real world application here, you can essentially take an eight ounce cup of their material and you could put it without a form factor change and store up to 80 times more gas in the same container because the, the surface area increase actually allows the gas to actually uh, attach to that surface area. It's a pretty incredible um, thing. I mean, it's, it's with a lot of these materials and new materials you've, you've seen, um, there really a lot of promise, but the CapEx required to make these uh, materials actually come to fruition and be adopted by industry is just so astronomical. The adoption curve is very slow, and so we've looked for things in the material space that um, don't actually require that, that massive cap, capex spend and basically makes it very easy for for industry to say yes. Well, why would What would make something have a tremendous capital expenditure versus not? Are there common factors or it's different for every product? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, imagine, you know, there's a lot of things out there that are trying to, I mean, you hear of clean, clean coal, which is, um, there's companies that are trying to make it cleaner, but the idea that you have to, I mean, shutting down and retrofitting coal plants, for example, versus, you know, putting a, a kind of filter with these moths in there would be a, a big differentiator between the two companies. I mean, that's kind of one live example that you could uh, that you could use. Makes sense. Okay. So it sounds like the first product you described is like a supercharged activated carbon for gas scrubbing. Um, in, a, in a way, uh, I mean, that separation is kind of a, a different, that's their, one of the next areas that they'll be going into. But um, yeah, yes, the, the, right now it's um, essentially for storage, and then you can get into separation. And then, you know, the, from there, there's a lot of other areas where they can tackle. I mean, that, that's kind of one of the things that, the, that we try and do at the OS Fund is look at these platform technologies. We really try not to take any kind of single molecule or, or, or single product risk uh, that leads to kind of a binary outcome. We, we try and take minimal scientific risk and really um, focus on the technological side. Yeah, and I shouldn't have asked you which of your favorites. That's like asking uh, which of your kids you love most. So sorry about that. <laughs> That's the question uh, I, I might ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about some uh, some other projects that you think are really fascinating. Uh, sure. So um, let's see. So one of the um, companies that we invested in very early on, is, it really helped us form our thesis a little bit further was uh, Ginkgo Bioworks. Um, we invested in the seed and the A, B round there. 
Um, the founders, just a truly amazing team out of MIT, five founders. Uh, one of them actually included the professor. Um, they've really become the, the breakout star in uh, synthetic biology. A lot of, I mean, synthetic biology got kind of a bad name from the um, biofuels race where they focused on creating something that was a commodity product that uh, was competing with oil. And that was when a lot of those, I mean, it's very challenging, first of all, um, uh, approach scientifically to actually create the biofuels the way they were trying to do it. But then you're also essentially competing with a commodity out there with oil. And so in the, you know, the 2007, 2008 period, when the economy was going down, um, these biofuels were actually um, getting a lot of investment because of they were competing with oil, which was up in the well over $100. Um, and that, since that crashed, a lot of the synthetic biology companies, um, their, their um, you know, future kind of crashed with them. But what right. we, looked, we looked for was a company that could basically try and do something where uh, maybe go a little bit lower on the sci scientific complexity curve first to show some wins to industry and get get the potential partners to believe in this a bit more. And so the flavors and fragrance industry was the was kind of the first target. Um, and the way that other, I don't want to single out companies that were doing it this way, but some of the other synthetic biology companies were taking a more kind of bench scientist approach. Um, Ginkgo took the opposite. They had a fully um, automated library and discovery engine. And... They had full Git architecture. I mean, kind of the same way that Brian built Braintree was uh, how Ginkgo was looking at actually building a synthetic biology company. And they've successfully built foundries and have partnered across multiple industries from the flavors and fragrance industry. But I mean, imagine, so they initially, their first market, I believe, was um, their first product was rose oil. So you could essentially take um, basically a Belgian rose is a bit of a finicky product, so you, or sorry, finicky plant, and so they're subject to, you know, all the natural growing cycles. Um, and ginkgo could essentially, could, within a traditional fermenter, they could go ahead and produce a genetically identical uh, rose oil. Uh, so you don't have any of the problems that are associated with actually growing the roses, any of the problems of the growing cycle, the... Um, the uh, any kind of fertilization or anything that you need or fertilizer on the on the land, so you can you can do it for a much lower cost, and then the business model uh, was was born to essentially share that that cost savings and to end royalty from there. So they've they've made synthetic biology a programmable and dependent um, a programmable and dependable um, industry, which has been really. Uh, really a breakthrough. And so they, they've been leading and has, has really been a, a great company for us um, to partner with. And it's also led to a lot of our, our some of our favorite deals going forward. So what what does the, um, the landscape look like today? I'm sure you get approached a lot. Um, are you seeing a shift in the types of companies that are approaching you for funding? Or, um, you know, what are you seeing? What are the, the, the big areas that are uh, a focus for a lot of companies right now? Um, yeah, I mean, we get, we get a lot of different... <laughs> We're, we're approached by a lot of different um, companies, but I mean, some of the the most promising is what we see is kind of the next stage of synthetic biology. Um, so first, you had kind of the cut and paste, um, where essentially you're replicating what's occurring in, in nature. Um, now you are able to, through computational tools, um, you are able to essentially create brand new proteins. 
um, which is really incredible. I mean, you you can you can go ahead and um, create things that are non-natural, and you can eventually, um, and we think in a few years, you'll be able to create them almost on demand anywhere in the world, which will be, you know, that's new medicine, that's um, uh, a lot of different applications. Um, for creating new compounds, is science able to predict what they're going to create, or they're creating stuff and they say, all right, well, let's see what properties it has? Or can you tell if there's, um, you know, what's going on there? Um, yeah, both. I mean, you you have um, kind of the, the computational tools to um, create the compounds, and then, I mean, the, the proteins are kind of the, the nature's uh, manufacturing plant, if you will. And so you, you can understand, you can kind of consolidate these manufacturing processes into these proteins, um, which is uh, pr- pretty pretty interesting and um, and important. I mean, there, there's one of our portfolio companies. We they've essentially become, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the large industrial players and uh, um, biotech companies are kind of coming to them to solve problems that they've they've had for many many years. And this company's able to tackle them within you know three to six months, which is pretty pretty attractive. What about from a um, consumer facing perspective? Uh, you know, anything involving biotech or medicine that's got to go through clinical trials and it just seems to go a much longer path to market. While other applications, you know, maybe AI-related ones or 3D printing may be much faster to market. So what do you think from, um, again, a consumer perspective that we'll see in the near term what kind of technologies are coming that you're seeing a lot of work being done in? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so we we don't focus a, a ton on kind of the consumer aspect. But and also, I mean, your point about the kind of FDA timeline is an excellent one. We really try and avoid companies that are taking uh, direct FDA risk. Um, so I'm just trying to think of one portfolio company that is um, that's it's 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 really interesting actually. They, the microbiome has really kind of come on as a um, uh, as a very interesting area because it truly affects all of us inside and out, um, and we're just starting to learn about Literally. it. Literally. So there's companies like like Ubiome. I mean, we invested in them. I believe the first investment was the seed back in I think it was 2014. And um, we have stayed involved with the company, but they they really have some amazing products. I mean, they have everything from a if you just want to explore your microbiome, um, they have a product that you can do that, and they also have things that will tell you what's in your gut. If you have, I mean, a big pro- a problem for uh, for people is uh, HPV now. And while some adolescents can get, get can get the uh, can get the vaccines. Um, there's a lot of people that are kind of past the, the target age for the vaccines. And so to understand what, if you have HPV, um, Ubiome has a test, uh, their smart chain test, which is actually uh, predicts, I, I believe they can detect up to 19 strains of HPV, which is far and above oh, wow. uh, on the market. Um, and then you can see within your microbiome um, how, if there's anything you can do to try and, um, it, it's as far as I know, it's not curable. So you can... Um, see what your microbiome can actually do to uh, to change that. Yeah, it's very cool. I've I've talked to Ubiome and Viome and a bunch of other of those companies and tried some of their products and it really is amazing what you can see what's in your in your gut and uh, you even get suggestions on what foods to eat, what not to eat. So the yeah, this it's really advancing quickly in that realm. Yeah, very cool. It's it's pretty neat because I mean a lot of the stuff that we you know we um, has been kind of the consumerization of. Of medicine with the you know the at home DNA tests, um, that's almost like a 
kind of you're, you're reading something, there's not really a whole lot of action you can take. Um, but with with the microbiome testing, there's actually action that you can take to to change your to change your microbiome and have an impact, um, which is is nice to be able to have an action item rather than just kind of uh, um, just essentially a report that you can read. What about um, in the realm of AI? I'm, I'm hearing that everywhere. All of a sudden, there's AI-assisted everything. It seems like there's a big resurgence there. Any investments in that realm? Yeah, we have, I mean, a, a lot of AI investments. Um, I mean, that's a common theme. We Essentially, our our, our companies are, you know, um, science that's enabled by technology, and that technology is usually AI, machine learning, on top of everything. So rather than, it, it felt like, I don't know, four or five years ago, a lot of people were investing in AI companies. Um, AI is almost an applied technology in nearly every company we invest in now. Um, so it, it's very specialized. It's not just kind of one AI. Um, I mean, Google's done a great job of um, applying their DeepMind uh, technology to a lot of different areas. But um, even within, you know, Numat, Kinko, or Zeta, all these companies that that I mentioned, they all have a new biome. They also uh, they all have uh, AI machine learning components. Yeah, it's being integrated into everything. I can see. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Um, this is probably, I don't know. I, I know the answer to this question probably, but because of the types of companies that you choose to invest in, is the analysis any different from any other, uh, you know, VC fund or fund that would invest? You know, you look for the same things, a great team, uh, you know, valid market, et cetera, or like what, what are your filters when you evaluate companies? Um, yeah, I mean, our, our filters are, you know, first, Brian and I have to believe the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial team can weather the journey of an entrepreneur. I mean, um, Brian's experience as being a founder through the ups and downs um, really make sure you, you kind of test the personalities for that. Um, so once once you pass that test, um, you know, we go through the normal um, aspects of making sure that there's um, – uh, well, I mean, a, a true market demand for for the product is really we focus more on demand than than the ability to um, produce it at first. So if there's truly a demand, and we believe the market will be there and will evolve to have the have the need for the product or the the suite of services being offered, then we bring it to our um, internal scientific diligence team, which is um, you know folks that are have just a, a tremendous skill set from PhDs from um, MIT and then Harvard. Um, that really understand the scientific aspect and can diligence this uh, with help of you know expert uh, consultants because you can't have the the uh, expert in every every area on your team at all times. So um, we've got a great network of consultants that have been helping us out. So um, I mean we really try and make sure that you know the, the normal things, but then the scientific aspect we need to make sure that it is readily achievable. Um, and then that we can focus on the commercialization and technology risk of, of, of the product. So uh, it's basically execution from there, which really we've, we've felt um, when you do those things and then you also add, I mean, one other aspect that we do um, quite a bit that's a little bit different is we work with all of our companies at the earliest stage on the IP uh, side of things. So basically working with the largest IP um, licensing firm to develop a comprehensive IP strategy. So with with these companies, it's incredibly IP intensive. And if you don't protect that at an early stage, you run the risk of somebody else kind of drinking your milkshake at a later later date, which is not good. Um, so we really, yeah, we I mean, we, we spend a lot of time there. I mean, even seed stage companies, whereas 
a lot of times, you know, they'll they say, "We oh, we have a patent. We're all <laughs> we're all set." Well, that that doesn't really do it. So we we spend a lot of time on that aspect, and it's been really great for us, and it, it de-risks the investment for follow-on investments too, because we were pretty comfortable with the uh, the uh, IP landscape at that point. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So that is a unique thing that you seem to do, and because of your investment thesis, what other unique mechanisms, you know, if they're not secret that you use to evaluate companies that maybe other firms don't? Um, I mean, my my investment background is more in the, well, it's, I mean, kind of came from public markets into private markets, so kind of working way into less liquidity. Um, and so really understanding what the public companies want that are the would-be acquirers and what they look for in, in uh, these companies. I mean, so not you know, obviously we're not we're we're trying to truly build companies that have the ability to stand on their own, but um, also understanding what um, a potential liquidity event um, is really looking for in these companies is is uh, very important. Um, so that I mean that aspect is somewhat unique because not not everybody in venture comes from the kind of um, from a more broad investment background. Um, so that's one thing that we have, and also just the you know the holistic nature of really. Um, understanding what what it takes to be a uh, someone that goes from bootstrapping a company to actually selling it to a Fortune 500 company. There's not many people that that kind of have that uh, have that experience like Brian does. Well, the reason I ask, you know, uh, I believe Peter Diamandis, the way that you know he'll do investments is he wants the company's efforts to affect a billion people. So I don't know if you had metrics uh that were like that you know any different internal metrics other metrics that you could share i mean y- yes the, uh, our companies we we basically want them to be able to impact the entire world and basically shape the course of uh humanity which is i know that's kind of a a broad area and so so is affecting a billion people but these are not um you know these are things that are technology platforms that we think can impact multiple different industries and by doing that, you impact people around the world. I mean, if, if you just think of biomanufacturing, you can essentially have an impact on all the almost all the products in the world. And I, I mean, that's that's you know, you're essentially your your reaches the world at that point. Well, what about the focus of the companies that come to you? Do they have that same huge expansive focus, or do you see that they're more narrowly focused, or does it matter? Um, we we like it when they have the large focus um, with. You know, with the, the ideal company would be a company that has a large focus that's already identified a a, tar- a first target market that they can easily enter. So you can you know get revenue in the company, you can have high margin revenue, and then you can expand the expand things from there. Um, you know, there have been some companies that have come to us with what we think are you know just ex- excellent technical aspects, great founders um, that their vision at first might be. Um, kind of a little bit smaller, but we think that after we talk to them for a little while, they uh, they seem to see you know some of them can see the the ability to uh, uh, tackle things a lot lot bigger than kind of what they initially came to the conversation with. And I think that's that's something we've been able to to help our companies uh, identify. Yeah, I guess you want people with big vision, but not people that you know their heads in the clouds and they're unrealistic. So I guess no. a, a balance between the two. Yeah, you're you're totally totally right. I mean the the, the big vision and Raising a massive amount of capital on a big vision, um, you still need to execute on something. Um, so, you, having having that kind of first market, the easy entry market, um, we we absolutely love something like that. 
and then work on the big vision as as, as kind of add-on bolt-ons uh, over the long period of time. Has the um, this is kind of a left field question, but has the cryptocurrency craze with ICOs at all poisoned your ability to uh, work with companies? Do they have different expectations, or because it's a different market, it has no effect on you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think everything in the world has an effect on on uh, everything else. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure it's having some effect. Are there's you know potential for um, venture funds to have different liquidity? If you're raising them through some kind of uh, blockchain type structure, which I think would be great for the ecosystem to do that, because you then you'd have a lot more companies funded and still allow liquidity um, during the you know normal 10-year fund life, which I think would be be amazing. But I think that there needs to be some probably some more um, easy to value assets or like real estate or something like that that would come first. Um, but it, it, we don't necessarily see a lot um, you know of, of competition i would say from kind of uh the crypto crypto world i mean there's companies that would like to be funded from that but there's not a ton of money that's been raised um from kind of traditional venture funds through the crypto uh method yet i mean there's there's a few examples but um i, I would not say that's my my area of expertise yeah no i know i know you guys don't play in that sandbox i just wonder if it affected you but if not that's great you know i wouldn't want you to be negatively affected by it so that's why i asked no, yeah, it's really it's not been a negative. I, I think it's really been a potential positive as a lot of companies look to potentially have a portion of the company, um, you know, listed at via or I guess offered public or offered via the blockchain. So that, that could be something that 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 could be interesting and actually additive to some of the portfolio companies. And then um, any um, any advice, you know, good old fashioned um, evaluation of companies. What have you found through your experience that, uh, you know, you look for? I know it's, you know, there's basics there, but what do you, you know, what what kind of things do you look for when you're evaluating a company and its founders and everything? Um, one thing is the ability to execute, um, not just kind of, you know, not promise, um, but actually have execution ability and do it quickly. Um, and you can see that usually through the diligence process is something that, um, you know, responsiveness, the, the, Details and the, the the references have been uh, quite quite helpful. Just execution is great. I mean, ideas are nice, but execution is what really really comes down to. Um, just trying to think of. Uh, let's see. Well, does it does it matter how early someone comes to you? You know, if they just have an idea, it's probably too early. But when when's the sweet spot for you know for someone listening? They're working on an idea. They're at some stage. At what what point is the sweet spot for them to approach a fund like you? Sure, that's that's a great question. Let me, uh, I'll kind of, uh, if I could redo I, that. I finally answer. asked a good one. Shoot. <laughs> no, that was that was, a, no, that was really great. I, I apologize for my question before, but so what, what we no, no. really like is is um, uh, what we really like is a company that has really spent the time. And so two good examples of this are Ginkgo Bioworks and Arzeda, right? They they have spent the time to build the company take a lot of uh, government grants, non-dilutive grants, so that shows how much they really value their equity and value the opportunity at hand, um, and get the company ready for commercialization. And so when they are ready to take venture capital, it's basically put the pedal to the metal and make this thing go and commercialize. Um, that, to me, is the ideal situation, right? So you, you have a, a true alignment between the, the founders and the investors and 
there is a sense of urgency and promise um, that that is shared. It's not just someone spinning out of a um, university and raising several hundred million dollars to have a, a large round that, to commercialize something. It, it's it's this careful craftsmanship of an idea um, to make it into something big over over a period of time and taking the time that it, it really takes to to do things right. So I, that's something that I just love to see. Um, and there, there's you know the, some of the government organizations like the NSF have been really tremendous to help scientific companies understand that and get them ready for commercialization. You think it's also good because you know once you accept money from the government, you're kind of uh, under the gun to perform. So does that make you feel more confident? Yes, I mean the government is they do a great job of making their grantees um, have measurement that they have to they have to hit, um, and so it, it's really a that gets them in a way. I think it gets them ready for. I mean, the NSF says that they're the nation's largest seed fund, which they really are. I mean, it gets it gets people ready to be be measured against targets. Um, and once you are doing that, whether it's government grants or venture funding, um, it, it's it's very important thing to set everybody's expectations to be proper. Um, and and I think the government does a good job of doing that. What about um, you know some advice? Again, someone listening, they have an idea. What advice do you have for them to get from their stage to the stage where they could approach a company like you? Should they do, should they do Kickstarter? Uh, should they self-fund? I mean, what you know, the early, early, early path before you even get in front of people that could fund you. Any recommendations there on what to do, what not to do? Uh, sure. I, I, be be very thoughtful. Take your time. Um, research potential competitors. Research what uh, who has tried something before you and failed and why. Um, and then, um, I mean, if it's a, if it's kind of, we don't, um, back a lot of widgets. So usually Kickstarter is not really the, the kind of way that most of our, um, and I don't mean widget in a, a pejorative sense. I just mean, we don't back a lot of kind of consumer product companies. Um, mm -hmm. so typically Kickstarter is not a, not a vehicle that they're using. Um, so I, I would look for, um, a lot of our companies go through, they get university grants, they get state grants, they get um, uh, national government grants, um, and they are that, that's typically the the method that they start out. Um, you know, a lot of the scientists are um, the, the, not not everybody that can start a company is flush with cash. So to do it that way is a is a thoughtful way without putting yourself um, at major financial risk. Hmm. Uh, when you have companies come to you, do you find that any of them have um shopped a lot of other funds and now they come to you and if so does that bother you or do you find that most of them are like you're the first person they approached um i mean the, the area where we invest um still is i think somewhat starved for capital um so we you know there's there's other funds that we come across which is great i mean you need to have a an ecosystem to support these companies through their life cycle. So there, there are other funds, um, and you know we like to try and find them, find the companies early. But um, I, you know if, if other companies have looked at it, that's that's fine. It's not a um, there, there's no no reason that they absolutely need to be exclusive to us. But I think once companies talk to us and understand our process and understand how deep we like to go with with really understanding what what they're what they're trying to accomplish and the technology that they've they have at hand. Um, they tend to work with us for as long as our capital is meaningful. Hmm. 
And how, how, would, uh, how do startups or ventures, how do they find out the landscape of who's out there that may be interested in the type of project they're working on? How do they find you, for instance, you know, normally? How do you find people come across you? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have a lot of relationships with different universities and with government agencies and then with a lot of the accelerators and incubators around the country, um, you know, other venture funds. But uh, there's our, our website's always a good way to get in touch with us. There's a contact us uh, page there. But... Um, you know, uh, a free resource um, that people can look at, uh, you, you know, usually there's um, some, you can look at the type of companies that might be somewhat similar to you. There might not be an exact analog, but somewhat similar and look on Crunchbase, which is a free resource. Um, well, I guess it's the majority of it is free, but, and you can see who else has funded those companies, especially at the early stage. So I, I would, I would suggest mm-hmm. doing that. Okay, makes sense. Okay. And then, uh, you know, last question or so, any areas that you're, like, salivating over that just aren't ready yet? You know, quantum computing, any other areas that you'd love to invest in, but there's just not much that's come out that's uh, commercially viable? That's a good question. Um, I'm just trying to um, think about some areas here that could be... Maybe even, like, your personal wish list. Oh, I wish that a company would do this or work on this. or I, You know, and the reason why I ask is you're in front of a lot of ideas all the time, and I bet that spurs more ideas than you. Or maybe you're sick of ideas. I don't know. But no, I, I would bet that you, yeah, you're thinking, just, hmm, yeah, I think no one's working on this. You know? well, I see a lot of people working on things that I, I absolutely love. But uh, So I, one thing that I'd, I'd love to see is a scalable way to create T-cells. I mean, like a lot, there's been a lot of, you know, Juno and Kite and some of these other companies have been bought out recently at pretty elevated valuations because of the promise of what the, you know, CAR-T therapies can do. But a lot of the patients... I mean, they're waiting, you know, 30, 40 days to get these T-cells. Um, and so some way, some platform that could uh, reliably and quickly produce uh, T-cells for patients, I think would be really interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. So uh, best way for people to reach out if they want to talk to you about, uh, you know, and present their idea or just find out more, what's the best ways to get in touch? Yeah, the best way is via our website. We uh, we respond pretty quickly, and uh, that's, that's always a, a great way to get in touch with us, osfund.co. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and uh, thanks for your insight. It's, uh, you know, I, I like to talk to, uh, like I said, people that fund these projects because they see a lot of them, and they have a different, like, 10,000-foot view of the landscape versus companies that are in the trenches doing stuff, you know? Sure. Well, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so thanks so much. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.